Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the February Donor Pick episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me again is my co-host, Coles. Good evening. This month, we asked our patrons to choose one of five Best Picture winners, and Jonathan Demme's classic, The Silence of the Lambs, was chosen by an overwhelming margin. This winner of the Oscars coveted Big Five, which is Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay, is one of the most respected thrillers of all time, and we're pretty excited to get to spend some time unpacking this one for you. And speaking of patrons, we also want to be sure to give a huge shout out to Joe Ort. I'm totally probably butchering your last name, Joe. I probably should have just not even tried to say it, but I apologize. It sounded like I was making some sort of calling an animal sound. But seriously, man, thank you for becoming our latest supporter. We appreciate you. And we hope that you're looking forward to voting on our March Donor Pick episode here soon. The theme for March is films directed by women because we want to honor Women's History Month. And one more note, we recently partnered with Letterboxd. Um, outside of Facebook, Letterboxd is probably the best social media site. It's, where it's a great community. People can come together. We can talk about film, look at reviews, check on what our friends are watching. And if you use the code FEELINGFILM at Letterboxd.com, you can get 20% off a pro or Patreon membership. And trust me, it's worth it just for the end of the year. You want to see your stats. You want to see how much films you watch, which films did you like. Um, what other films did your friends like? It's totally worth it. And I would definitely recommend it for anybody out there who loves film like we do. Absolutely. Again, that's code feeling film. And don't forget, spell it like the podcast. That's F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M. And it is 20% off also, Coles, so they know, on the pro or patron, but it does work on like renewals. So this is not just good for a new membership. Oh, you did. You said that. You said upgrade. See, here I am just like saying stuff again for no good reason but yeah go letterbox <laughs> yay all right well with that out of the way we're going to get into our one word takeaways and you can get us started mines was hero silence of the lambs is not just a film about hannibal lecter or about the serial killer buffalo bill or about the disturbing murders that we see it's mostly about claret sterling and how she is one of the forerunners for being the modern female heroine we see now today. Claire, Claire, Clarice, when we first see her, she is alone and she's kind of trying to find her footing in a male-dominated organization like the FBI. And over the course of the film, we see her eventually gather the strength to not over overcome her traumas, but to solve the case of who Buffalo Bill is. The thing about Clarice is that she's not just the typical female person you would see in a thriller. The one thing about Silence of the Lambs is that it's not the typical Hollywood thriller. There's not any gunfights or shootouts, and there's not a female character that doesn't have any agency or is pretty much a damsel in distress. Clarice has her own agency throughout the whole film, and she proves to be a hero by the end, not just by her journey, but by the way she goes about it, by the way she shows strength, by the way that she is able to go head on with Hannibal Lecter. She's not she's not antagonized by him. She's not she's not willing to be in the shadows by him. She's ready to take him on and she proves to everybody that she is a pivotal part of the FBI and that she should be given respect. Absolutely agree with that. My one word takeaway is close up, and I'm using this as a brief way to kind of talk about something that has to do with technicals, and we don't usually get too deep into that in this podcast, but the way this film is shot is so impactful to me, and I had totally forgotten, and so I'm going to just go ahead and set the stage right here for this entire conversation and say, I haven't seen this in two decades. I saw it several times in my teen years and young adult years, but I haven't watched it in probably 20 years easy. And so it was, in a lot of ways, like watching a new film. This will happen to me where I know the plot of a movie I saw 20, 25 years ago, but I definitely don't remember any of the details or nuances 
of how we get from point A to point B, right? And that was what was so impressive to me watching it this time around was right off the bat noticing characters staring into the frame and speaking. And there is a method of just, I think, drawing the audience in and, and putting us in different characters' shoes, often Clarice, sometimes Lecter, depending on who the character is talking to. There's a power in the way that it feels when you have a character staring into the screen, just talking directly to you. Even though you know that they're not, your mind knows that they're talking to someone off screen in the movie, but it feels so personal. And I think that because of that, the feeling we get from that then lets us know what it must feel like for the character that is actually being spoken to off screen in a way that we wouldn't if we just saw two characters, you know, framed in the same picture, looking at each other side by side. And there's just something really amazing about that. And it's, you know, beyond that, just the fact that this is a close up look at what it's like to catch a serial killer in a way that most films, most thrillers that even deal with serial killers don't tend to get that into. We oftentimes will see movies and stories that sort of skip over some of the figuring things out, details, little bitty tiny moments in order to make big bombastic scenes and this one doesn't do that. It's really about the details and about the conversations that happen that over time, little nuggets present themselves um, and you've got to really pay attention. And so I like that a lot about Silence, watching it this time around. Well, this is our spoiler warning. If you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs for some crazy reason, you absolutely should. It, again, was a winner of the Big Five Oscars for a reason. There's only a handful of films that have ever accomplished this. La La Land should have, but okay, I digress. <laughs> Seriously, this is spoiler warning. We're going to really just ruin this for you, and I don't think you should have it ruined for you. I think you should experience it for yourself the first time as freshly as possible and go from there. So you've been warned. With that, we're moving on. Well, throughout the film we're exposed to the way in which Clarice is often marginalized. You spoke to this in your connecting or in your one word takeaway. And she is looked at through this male gaze of everyone, her superiors, other men during the investigation, her peers, um, the criminals. It, it doesn't matter who, but everyone is looking at her and we get, because of these close-ups that I was talking about, we get to be in their shoes at often times. And it can be really creepy and really uncomfortable, I think. And for me, it was enlightening to walk through this story mostly as Clarice, as this hero cop, hero agent, rather, that is a woman in this patriarchal dominated society, and specifically a patriarchal dominated job, a masculine dominated job. Everybody else in this whole movie, save one friend of hers, really, and a senator <laughs> and women who get kidnapped and murdered <laughs> are men, right? Everybody else kind of in power positions in this story. And yet we have Clarice who is weaving her way through this and very carefully having to always weigh the decisions she makes against the knowledge that she may only have like one opportunity at this because while men may get multiple chances she may not what i loved about this coalesce one thing was the opening scene particularly and it shows us clarice right off the bat running a, through the woods doing a training course at the FBI training facility. And I love that because it immediately establishes her as not just a smart person who we would easily identify a woman with being, but 
it, it implies that she has the physical traits necessary to be an FBI agent. She's not just there because of her looks or because of a handout. We see that she is very capable physically. And I just, I found that to be a really appropriate choice because it set me up to think of Clarice as 100% equal right off the bat. And I think in stories that don't have women in these roles often, a lot of times we can kind of default to thinking that they're there and maybe not as capable as a man. But this doesn't do that. And so I really like that. Um, I, I also, I think, would note the other big scene for me is when she is in Memphis or it might be West Virginia, but I can't remember where they're at. But they're somewhere in the south and they're in the church and they're going to look at one of these bodies. And there's just this room of male cops, the way that they look at her is really troubling to me. What it did for me is it reminded me that we have to be aware of how we look at people. And we have to mentally sometimes kind of work to change that. Because I don't think, or I didn't get the sense that any of these cops were necessarily terrible people, right? They're police officers. They seem like they're good dudes. Nobody was making lewd gestures. Nobody was making inappropriate remarks. But the way they looked at her, so much was in that position of their face and the, their body language, the way that they didn't feel like she belonged. It's in the eyes. And we have to be aware of that. And we have to be able to, I think, be honest with ourselves if we catch ourselves doing this, right? I mean... I'm a big proponent of believing that people have to have an opportunity to change. And we have lived in a world that has bred you know, sexism and racism and all of these things so much that people have grown up thinking it's the norm. People do need at least an opportunity to be made aware so that they can then address and make a change, a conscious decision. And for me, that's just what that scene did. It was like, not that I have that problem necessarily, but like it reminded me of that. And it was just so awful. And, and I just, I couldn't imagine living my life as Clarice in general, much less trying to be the one to lead through this organizational, you know, investigation, this major, major case, knowing that all these people were kind of not necessarily rooting against me, but just didn't really have my back or believe in me, it would be really hard. And I think it makes her success in the end that much stronger for me. So oh, yeah, I, it was, it was a big theme that I think is, I never noticed before when I watched this 20 years ago. And I, obviously you connected with that because you mentioned it already. Yeah. There are a couple of scenes, especially early in the film, like once Clarice gets off the, the field where she's exercising and she comes into the FBI office and she's going into the elevator and she's surrounded by a group of men. And already you kind of get that there's not many women that work in the FBI. And she is kind of just one of the rare people, one of the rare females that's in this organization and how hard it is for her to be taken seriously. And she's a person who's trying to do a job, but She's constantly finding these situations where she's going to these other professional men and these professional men, they'll talk to her about the case, but then they'll drop something like, hey, um, do you want to go out for a beer or sometime? Like, hey, do you know in this town there's um a couple of places around here where you can get some good beer and we can have some fun? Like, how do you think about that? She's just there to do her job <laughs> and she just wants that same respect. Like, if a man was coming to do a job, I'm pretty sure that, you know, a woman who is in the, like say for instance that the men that were asking that were talking to Clarice say for instance that was a female and they were talking to a male say that the Clarice was the male I'm pretty sure that a woman wouldn't be asking a male hey like do you want to go somewhere and have a drink after this or anything I mean it, it could happen but there's a difference in the behavior that we have and it's not like Clarice doesn't have the credentials for her being there it's not like that she's not unsuited to be an fbi agent she can't she got a degree from university of virginia she's very smart she graduated at the top of her class so she deserves to be there but for her for women like her 
especially in a patriarchal, patriarchal dominated society, you have to work twice as hard to even get a sense of respect. And throughout the film, we see that Clarice is working along with trying to find Buffalo Bill. She's working to get the respect of the male superiors around her. The only one who shows her any kind of respect is Dr. Jack Crawford. He sees her as kind of like his apprentice and he's mentoring her. He's like, hey, you're she wants to work with she wants to work in the department that I'm working in. So I'm kind of training her. And he's really one of the few guys that shows her respect. And it, it's hard for women, still is hard for women, but Back during this decade, I read an interview with the screenwriter, Ted Talley, and he talked about how he wanted to portray, he wanted to show the film from the point of view of Claire Reese because there wasn't many Hollywood thrillers that were doing that. Many of the thrillers back in the day were mostly showing it from the male's perspective, or if they were showing female characters, female characters were just there to be sex objects, or they were there and they had no agency. They were, they had little small bit parts. But Claire, but the thing about this film is that we get to see this from her perspective. And so we also get to see the problems that lay for women in the employment place. And it still happens now. We still get these cases where women are just trying to do their job. They're in these corporate structures and they're having to deal with sexual harassment or they're having to deal with people who making passes at them. And sometimes they're even having to deal with gaslighting. And in this film, we can even see that when Clarice is talking to Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal Lecter is kind of not taking her seriously at first. But over time, he earns her respect through their conversations and he sees her not really as an equal, but he sees her as somebody who is deserving of respect, someone who really is qualified for the job. And I think it says a lot about Clarice is that Throughout the whole film, we don't really see her really have a moment where she's taking this in. It's kind of like she's she's suspecting this. She expects for this treatment to happen, but more caring than about how males are really seeing her. And it shows power. It shows strength. And it shows why she's a perfect example of a, fe of a female hero that we have. And she set the benchmark for so many female heroic characters to come after her. Yeah, you're on the point here. And I think... One thing that's really fun is to listen to commentaries. We both greatly enjoy that, and that's one reason that we both collect physical media the way that we do. And there is a fantastic commentary track on the Criterion edition of Silence of the Lambs that features Jonathan Demme, uh, Anthony Hopkins, Jodie Foster. I think Ted Talley is on there, actually, and then so is the inspiration, the FBI agent that was actually the inspiration for Jack Crawford and his character. And every single one of them talks about being bought into Clarice having the perspective of this film, right? Like, even while doing their own character work or their own thing, it's all about Clarice, Clarice, Clarice. Uh, and I think that shows in this film. There's no conflicting issues with other people. Like everyone understands that their screen time is meant to inform Clarice's position. And that's able to be seen by us and felt when we watch the movie. So, yeah, they do a great job of it. Well, villains. So we have a hero. So we kind of have a villain. And we maybe kind of have two. We have... Buffalo Bill, who is the main villain, who is the serial killer of this film. And yet we also have the majority of this picture with a different villain, and that is Hannibal Lecter, the Hannibal, the cannibal character, right? And I wanted to talk about this for a second because I made a joke post after I watched this and I said, I'm giving this four stars this time around. Do I lose my film critic? card automatically because i didn't think this was a masterpiece or whatever and the reason i did that the reason that it didn't land for me as well is largely for this because i didn't feel like buffalo bill was ever that scary he never was given enough of a story we didn't spend enough time with him. We knew of him. We heard about the terrifying things he did. But it just didn't create a character that I 
feared in the same way that I have feared other great portrayals of serial killers. And let's just be honest, like this is a favorite thing of Hollywood these days. Like serial killers are everywhere. But I would compare this somehow to like Seven, where we meet the killer about two-thirds of the way through that film, and we spend a large portion of time with that person. Enough of a of a time with that person to kind of interact. And what we see here is we see like a splitting of that, where we would we take the person from like seven, and then we would split it, and we would get kind of both of those things, but we would have part of it through Hannibal and part of it through Buffalo Bill. And it just kept me a little bit at length, because I was never quite sure what I was feeling. You know, at times, I almost felt like I wanted to sympathize with Hannibal and I'm sure that's part of the the intention of the story. I honestly sometimes don't think we are scared enough of Hannibal and then we get to Buffalo Bill and it kind of ends up being a little anticlimactic for me, I guess is how I felt. Like it's a great scene, don't get me wrong, one of the best scenes in the movie, the way the camera work is done and this is the thing, I will praise the technical creation of this film all day long the moment where we have the fbi standing at the door about to make a raid and we believe that they're outside of buffalo bill's house and then we see him inside going to the door and we flip it and understand that it's clarice and not the actual fbi they're in the wrong spot that's terrifying at first but then after that it feels a little less so to me and so i wondered like how did that work for you? Did you feel scared by Buffalo Bill or am I missing the point and I'm not supposed to feel scared at all? Like, is it my, is it on me or, you know, am I not alone here? To be fair, Aaron, when I did see your post and I saw you gave it a four out of five, I was thinking, man, I'm going to roast this guy on the podcast. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> but when I did my rewatch, I kind of saw your point of view. I mean, the scariest parts of Buffalo Bill are kind of in the beginning when we see him take the senator's daughter. Um, it, it almost reminded me of the stories that you would hear of Ted Bundy, where Ted Bundy would pretend to have a cast and he would go around these college campuses and ask these women to come and help him to his car. And then that's when he would strangle them or like subdue them and get them and kidnap them. And he would do whatever he did to them. But after that, we only get these, certain vignettes of scenes of Buffalo Bill. We get these minor scenes where we see him tormenting Catherine and we see him, you know, trying on and putting on the lipstick and trying on the women dresses. And we see what he wants to be, which is he wants to be a woman. He, he feel he's not really happy with himself. And he feels that if he is a woman, he can be able to escape into that and not have to deal with who he really is. And while I do appreciate that angle of the story, the reason that most people love and revere Silence of the Lambs is because of Hannibal Lecter, who is not the, the the true villain of the film. He is a villain. He's a guy that we see him do some terrible things by the end, but we're allured by Hannibal Lecter. I mean, Anthony Hopkins is only in this film for 15 minutes, but it feels like he's in the film for an hour just based on his impact. I mean, the opening scene we see of him, he's standing in his in his cell ready for Clarice. To see him and he has the best lines i mean he's intelligent he's charming he was once a psychiatrist so he has a little bit of a backstory and he's helping clarice on the case but i feel that with buffalo bill he gets shortchanged i mean by the end you know when clarice is able to find him you don't really get that sense of like wow we we got a real victory right here you know the victory is mostly in clarice being able to solve the case when the fbi went to the wrong address but for Buffalo Bill, I kind of wanted to see a lot more scenes from him. I wanted to see more of what he was doing in the house. I wanted to see more of his obsession with the Mothheads. I wanted to see more of what he was doing to Catherine. <laughs> the Mothheads is a big thing for me. Like, that's the thing. Like, when that came up, okay, I, I rem you, everybody remembers because it's the scene on the poster, right? Mm -hmm. And that happened in that church scene where they're doing the... Uh, they're, they're doing, checking the body, right? Autopsy. Couldn't think of the word. 
and they find that and they kind of ex- describe it and explain it. But it's really only a metaphor. And it, and it feels like so strangely underused as a metaphor until the very end. And then somebody just kind of says, oh, look at that. He has a moth like wind chime thing that spins around. <laughs> you know, it's very like on the nose kind of a, oh, hey, don't forget that thing. We told you we'd come back to that. So, yeah, I, I felt you on that part, too. But go ahead. Yeah, and then we also see that he's a he's an expert at sewing dresses, but we don't get more detail into that. We only kind of know about that because Clarice goes and finds one of the victims' families, and, they, and he she finds out that one of the victims was planning on making a dress, and they had a dress in their closet. I I, I just wanted more clarity onto who Buffalo Bill was. It felt like that he's a villain because we see that he's killing people and we see Hannibal Lecter. He has a connection with him because he dated one of his patients. Most of the information we know about Buffalo Bill is given to us through other characters. And you don't really get the sense of Buffalo Bill being menacing, but only by just name itself, not from the actions of who he is. Agreed. And for me, it is a critique. It is a critique. It's a, it's a critique that I think that you should have. And I agree with you on it. Now for me, it doesn't take away from the power of the film, but I do understand if people want to down the film because of that. Yes. Okay. So good. And I, I like having this discussion because I think this is important too, is sometimes we're going to have this happen where you're going to be able to see something that is a fair a critique for a viewpoint that somebody else might put more weight on and you can understand that it might bother someone else more, but you also don't have it bother you enough that it's going to change how you feel about this overall. And so I think these are those nuances and this is where it's great to have like, Oh my gosh, I'm at a four. I'm not like at a one. It doesn't have to be a five or a one, you know, like the world seems to think the rotten tomatoes world. Uh, yeah. So that's, it's really cool. I'm glad that you were, I'm glad you said that. Cause I can think of a lot of my five star films and favorite films that, you know, I could point out, well, I could see how somebody wouldn't like that, but man, I like it or I'm okay with it, you know? Um, and that's definitely Buffalo Bill for me in this one. Just, just didn't, didn't quite land as well. Uh, and, and like you said, I guess let's talk about Hannibal because he is the iconic character and, I mean, it's interesting because we started this by talking about Clarice, and Clarice is the hero, as you said, and this is all framed for Clarice. And yes, Jodie Foster won an Oscar, and yes, Jodie Foster considers this probably her greatest role, and she is, at least in most film circles, regarded as one of the strong female characters ever because of this film. But if somebody said... And played that game with you and was like, say the first thing that comes to mind when I say these words and I say, Silence of the Lambs, you're not going to say Clarice. The odds are extremely low. I I do not believe that people are going to say Clarice. They're going to say Hannibal. They're going to say Anthony Hopkins, Lecter. And that's intriguing to me. And it speaks to the incredible nature of like that performance and just his approach that character i also found it fascinating because it's so unbelievable this story works despite making no sense like there is no way in hell they would put a cage in the middle of a museum in downtown west virginia city or wherever they work you know what i mean like that is just absolutely bonkers that would never happen not even a million years nor would they like wheel him up in a big hangar face to face with a senator to have a conversation. Like there are just so many things in this movie that I'm just like, stop it with, especially with regards to Hannibal, but it doesn't matter because it's entertaining and it allows him to, you know, have the opportunity to do these great manipulative mind tricks. And I think that's what makes him fascinating is his ability to, do exactly what Jack Crawford warns in the very beginning. So in the opening scene, after she, you know, does her run or whatever, and she goes into Jack's offered uh, office, he specifically says this. He says, be very careful with Hannibal Lecter. Dr. Chilton at the asylum will go over all the physical procedures used with him. Do not deviate from them for any reason whatsoever. You're to tell him nothing personal, 
Believe me, you don't want him inside your head. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. And we, it's a brilliant scene. We cut to Dr. Chilton. She says, what is he? And we cut to Dr. Chilton at the hospital saying, oh, he's a monster, pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. And so we know going in and Clarice knows going in and Jack knows what he's sending her into. And he sends her in knowing full well she's going to have to break his rule and get personal in order to get the information that they need. He knows that. He knows that. He's in a sense he's playing her. Or using her, I should say. Not playing her. He's using her. Um, and it's not ne- in a negative way. It's for the betterment of the... He doesn't think... He, he's not putting her in danger, necessarily. But he's using this psychological tactic to get at Hannibal Lecter. And the game that they play between the two of them as she begins to exhibit the agency, to me, that's what's so brilliant about her character is Clarice recognizes what's happening and understands the need to play certain parts of his game by getting personal with him in order to get what she needs out of him. And she's able to make the smart discernible choices that it's worth it to save the lives that she can save. And just the brilliant, I think way in which his character is treated as a monster by everybody other than Clarice almost. And he responds to her treating him almost human, I guess giving, giving him the, respect to to talk to him without talking down to him and he sees her as an equal uh, and and a, a person who is worthy of you know having a deeper conversation with and it's just it's a fascinating fascinating thing to watch people play these mind games in this amazing screenplay um and and so for me i think that's where i fall in love with his character and that's part of why I find it so just, just irritating to me that he walks off into the sunset like a hero, like the music to the film. This is not a critique, by the way. This is just a like I'm not like it's not a criticism. Rather, it is just a, a me noting that it is in, it is fascinating to me that he makes a joke out of he's going to kill Dr. Chilton and the the reaction when you're watching that, Coles, is to laugh. I mean, tell me you don't laugh. Tell me you don't chuckle. Tell me you don't like. Uh, you definitely laugh. Doctor Chilton's gonna get his for dinner. Yeah, Doctor Chilton's gonna get his because he's a jerk. We want him to die, be murdered. Like, what is that? Why are we rooting for this character? So yes, I find him incredibly fascinating, and I don't think that there's any killer in the movies that I ever have felt so conflicted about even after watching him skin people alive and bite their faces off yeah the thing is is that we're so used to seeing serial killers or murderers in our society being seen as just people who are evil just demonic you know they're not they're non-humans you know they're just um one of satan's foot soldiers and they should go to the hell that they deserve to go to but the thing about hannibal is that he's charismatic uh, he's intelligent. He's well versed. Um, he loves and appreciates art. We see him throughout the film where he's doing drawings, or and he has like places stuck to the to the wall of his cell where he's he enjoys the view. He enjoys seeing great architecture. Part of his desire to help Clarice is that in the hopes he can get a deal to where he can he can go to he can transfer to a place where he can have a view of something. Because he wants to be reminded that there's still a world out there. Because he's been surrounded by four walls for for most of his for most of his um adult life, which is well deserved. Because I mean, this man bit off someone's tongue, and his pulse never raised above eighty five. That's a that's a manner of um human behavior that I don't think any of us will ever <laughs> understand or be privy to. But when you see Hannibal, you understand that. This guy, I mean, he has some kind of a heart. I mean, he does terrible things, but it kind of reminds me of 
another character, like Alex from Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. We, if anyone has seen that film, you understand that the leading character in the film is Alex. He's a young psychopath, and he does terrible things, but we also see that he likes Beethoven. You know, he likes art. You know, he appreciates beauty in things. Even though he does these terrible things, we can still we still see things that make him a human. And it's the same with Hannibal. I mean, he gets the best lines. I mean, who doesn't know the a census taker once tried to test me and I took his liver and I ate it with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Like who doesn't love that? It's just, it's the way that Anthony Hopkins plays the character. That is a gift and a curse, a gift because it created a whole new way in which we look at serial killers in film. The bad thing is, is that there have been so many imitators of Hannibal Lecter after the silence of the lambs that it's become kind of a joke. It's kind of, become kind of a parody but the thing about Hannibal is that yes even though he does these terrible things we still are kind of on his side in a way you know we we understand that he was once a psychiatrist so he once was a guy of merit he had value that he was adding to society by helping people with their problems it's just that he has some mental imbalances inside of him that he can't control and he is a danger to anybody but I mean, this is a guy that you would sit down and have a conversation with if, if you didn't know that he was a serial killer. Like, I could see myself, like, going to Hannibal Lecter and talking about a, a Picasso painting or talking about a new um, art film that i just seen. I mean, he would be a perfect guy to talk to because he's very intelligent. Uh, the one thing I wanted to say about also how this film is kind of unbelievable when it comes to Hannibal Lecter is that when he does escape from that cell <laughs> in the museum— how did he have enough time to put the police officer <laughs> with his arms in a flag behind him above the cell and be able to move the body, take the skin off the guy's face and just lay down? Like, how did he have enough time to do that? <laughs> Interns. Interns on the set. That's how. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. Like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Like, you're trying to escape and you're going to take the time to like set up this big scene for shock and all. I, I mean, I just don't see it either, but whatever. I mean, it's, it's memorable. It is very, very memorable. That is for sure. Well, we talked a minute kind of there about the, the moss and the title. I wanted to mention the title, the silence of the lambs. So I actually don't care about this at all. It feels almost like a thrown away thing. I haven't read the novel. I'm wondering if it is, if this metaphor is kind of poked at and, and brought up multiple times more often throughout the novel. Cause a lot of times that's when a metaphor will be more effective is when you're hearing it or seeing it kind of slowly revealed. This seems to all happen in one scene. Like she talks to him. It's a very moving or powerful scene where they're having this discussion and she finally opens up and she tells this story about the screaming lambs and wanting to see them. But it feels so like on the nose to me. Like, yeah, of course, screaming women. You want to save the screaming women. That you're an FBI agent. Like, am I missing the point here? Or is there something that is like, was this really that necessary to her solving this case in your opinion? I feel like that the significance of the lambs is more tied into Claire Reese's heroic journey. You know, we see that as a young girl, she, her parents had died and she had moved with her aunt and uncle out to Montana and she didn't feel the same out there and she wanted to run her way, but, and she kept hearing these lambs outside of her window. And she was thinking about like, these lambs are screaming because they're about to die. They're about to be slaughtered. And there's nothing I can do to save them. Like, that speaks to empathy. That speaks to compassion. I mean, think about the times that we have seen, like, animals outside. Like, we've seen, we've heard, like, dogs cry, or we've heard cats meowing and crying, and we think about, oh, like, if, if only I could just, like, take that cat and take care of it, and, you know, give it some nurture, give it some care, and, you know, give it a home and give it love. I mean, it's it speaks to a human emotion, and I think that it adds into Clarice's determination to find Catherine. She doesn't want Catherine to be another per se lamb in her world. She feels that if she's not able to save the um, Senator's daughter. She's not going to be able to ever get over that trauma of her having that lamb that she was running away with 
and then being caught and then seeing that lamb still get killed. That's what I took away from it. It's kind of the same thing. And I do a lot of connection with movies because I feel that every movie is connected in some way. You remember Get Out, right? Jordan Peele, Daniel Kaluuya. And you see in the beginning of Get Out where Chris, where Daniel Kaluuya's character, Chris, they, him and his girlfriend, they run over a deer. And he goes over to that deer and he looks at it a little bit. There's a shot of him looking and staring at it. And it speaks – and it, we understand the significance of that later on when it comes to – he ended up finding out that his mom died in a car accident. And he had a feeling that when she didn't come home that something happened to her. And he sat there and did nothing about it. And it's a guilt that comes over you and you kind of never let it go. It's like, what if I could have did something to change that? What if I could have saved my mom? The same thing is with Clarice when it comes to the lambs and Catherine. That's what I took away from it. I think that's fair. Yeah, I get it. I get it from a narrative like I can understand it. I just don't I don't feel it. Like when I'm watching the movie, it doesn't feel to me like the character should need this additional motivation. I feel like if you're an FBI agent, you should want to save whoever you can save and catch the killer. And your personal feelings should have no bearing on this whatsoever. And so it's it's kind of a strange thing for me that her trauma plays into this in a way. But I guess it makes sense. I mean, you can't separate the two. If If you had this trauma in her past, if she has this, then she is going to connect the dots naturally speaking it just doesn't seem like it enhances her character to me but i get it so one thing that is an interesting piece of this film is its depiction of buffalo bill and his portrayal as a transsexual he clearly wants to on some level be a woman or identify as a woman or he feels that there is a power in wearing a woman's armor so to speak um, a woman's skin it's really creepy obviously um it's really gross to watch and and see like some of the things in the background i didn't notice as well until the commentary pointed them out but there's some disgusting things in his apartment man just little like little pieces of skin and, and stuff that are laying around but his identity, I think, can be questionable because of the society that we have now and an understanding we have now around how portrayal of trans characters has been over the course of history, right? And so we have Lecter when he talks about Bill at the beginning or, or when he's first explaining about him. He says, look for severe childhood disturbances associated with violence which is something we always associate with serial killers. Oh, they started off by killing animals kind of thing. Our Billy wasn't born a criminal, Clarice. He was made one through years of systematic abuse. Billy hates his own identity, you see, and he thinks that makes him a transsexual. But his pathology is a thousand times more savage and more terrifying. So this is interesting to me because... What Lecter is saying is that he was made a criminal because of systematic abuse, because of the way he was treated, likely because he hates his own identity, right, is, the I guess, the implication that I'm getting. Almost like if you treat a transsexual person like trash, then you are creating and abusing them to the point where if someone is like bill who is already has this pathology that is savage and terrifying this then this is how he acts out so it truly doesn't have anything to do with him being a trans person it has to do with that just being the specific trigger for his kind of predisposal to violence as it were that's how I read it, and because of that, it doesn't bother me uh, in the way that I think some other depiction of transsexual characters in Hollywood has. I think it's in critical. It's critical to the story that we're telling. Now, he is a mashup of multiple different serial killers. Like you mentioned, Ted Bundy. I know that was a, a part of it. Ed Gein is another huge influence on his character. Dude, just some of the story. I don't, I'm not a true crime guy. 
So I don't read all this stuff and I don't watch all this stuff. I, I could not. I just, I don't have the stomach. I don't want to think about the world being full of people like this <laughs> or having people like this in it. I just, it, it just is too dark for me. Um, the things that these people have done. And this is one of those cases where he's, it, I think it feels harsher to us when we think of it because it's so dramatic when someone is skinning someone. But in reality, murder is murder, kind of. You know, like, death is death. This is like a fetish to him. It's like a thing that he needs to do for his identity. Like, he feels different when he's wearing this woman's coat. Like, that makes him feel safe and secure and, you know, free from all of this abuse, I think, that he's taken throughout his life. Uh, and I think that's why, you know, Lecter talks about him being rejected from transsexual surgery. And it, it, I think, if anything, watching it in these days should also trigger in people like, be careful how you treat people. You know, we talk about it in our Facebook group. We, we're, we allow people to believe what they want to believe, but we're not going to allow people to intentionally misgender someone or use a dead name with the purpose of being hurtful to that person. There are ways to keep your beliefs to yourself and still be respectful to a person. And and it reminds me of that when I watch this movie, because I'm like, you, you don't want to push someone to the point where they're this hurt inside. And of course, most people aren't going to react this way, but that's just the kind of the way that I saw his identity. And so does it bother you at all to see the way the transsexual portrayal is done? I didn't get any of the vibes that much of the controversy surrounding this film during this time and still comes when it comes to portrayal of homosexual characters. I mean, there are other films I have seen. I've had the disservice of seeing that has done um, homosexual characters in a way of just painting them as just stereotypically just all out and flashy and just all about, you know, you know, trying to get with people and just and just being so enamored into the character that it becomes their identity and they don't have any other kind of personality to them. You know, because we have met people who are homosexuals in our life and we come to see them as regular people because they are. And in this film, we're dealing with extreme form of a person, a Buffalo Bill. But like you said before, Buffalo Bill was made this way because of things that happened in his past as his childhood. And we always talk about that childhood is very important to the development of many people. Because what you get in childhood, usually you'll carry that into your adulthood. And it doesn't talk about it in the film, but I'm pretty sure that when Buffalo Bill was going through his abuse and whatever traumatic things happened to him... I mean, what person wouldn't think less of themselves when they go through something like that? Because if abuse is happening to you, you think, oh, something is wrong with me. People are hurting me and, you know, tearing me down because I'm wrong. Like, I was made wrong. I'm different and people don't like me being different. So what do I do? I got to be somebody else. I got to become something new. I have to rebirth myself. I have to transform into something. And I think that's why we see Buffalo Bill making... <laughs> The dress full of women's skin. Now, once again, a very extreme example, but this is a man trying to escape. He's trying to escape from trauma. He's dealing with it in a way that is very unhealthy and something I wouldn't recommend for anybody. <laughs> you know, I would say that if someone is going through trauma, I would say talk to a therapist, reach out to somebody and get it and get some help, you know, and try to deal with it in a more healthier way. But there are many other ways you can read into Buffalo Bill. I read something where it says that Buffalo Bill wants to become a woman, presumably because he sees femininity as a more desirable state, probably a superior one. Maybe him being a male is not working out for him very well. Maybe he's not the stereotypical alpha, alpha male that we see um, championed in society, which is also toxic in its own depiction. So maybe he wants to be a woman because he sees that as, as a much more easier life to have. Maybe these are desires he's always had. We we may never know, but I don't think it's detrimental to the way that LGBTQ are depicted in the film. Uh, and honestly, we don't ever really see um, him being a transsexual. This is a man who thinks that he wants to be a transsexual 
but he's not a transsexual. So I don't think that this is something that speaks harm to people who are really transsexuals. I just think that is this is just an extreme form of someone who's dealing with repressed traumatic emotions that manifest into him taking it out on innocent women. Yeah, yeah, that's I, I think you're absolutely right. Well, the last question before connecting point is we want to talk through is there has been conversation about this film over the years on where it falls on the spectrum. Is it a horror movie or is it a thriller? Where do you fall on this debate? I'll let you go first and then I'll tell you what I think. It's a true psychological thriller. You know, in horror, usually we're dealing with something in the supernatural. Now, in real life, there is, of course, horror. And a serial, being someone who is a serial killer, that could be horrifying to somebody, especially if you have come across someone who is like that or anybody who has dealt with violence being in, inflicted on them. That's horrible. It's horrifying and it's scary. And no one wants to experience that feeling. But for me, I feel that Silence of the Lambs is more psychological in a sense. You know, we see that Hannibal Lecter, he takes pleasure in trying to manipulate and play with the mind of Clarice during their interviews. He's clearly, you know, trying to get the leg up on her with his words and his ability to be inquisitive and curious and read people. Um, there are not really too many jump scares in this film. Like, there's not a moment where you're going to, like, be like, oh, like, wow, I didn't see that coming. No, it's more of just showing a symptom of society that one, if it goes undiagnosed, it leads to tragedy. And many people can say that's a horror, but for me, I say it's more of a thriller because you're you're kind of stuck on the edge of the seat wondering, is Clarice going to stop this guy? You know, what is Hannibal Lecter going to do? Is he going, if he went, does he escape out of this prison and does he end up coming after Clarice? It's, it's more of these like what ifs that could potentially turn into plot developments, but you're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. So it's more suspenseful for me and not horror, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. I mean, that's definitely the argument on that side of what is what you're outlining right there. I, man, so people take pride because they say this is the only Best Picture winner to ever win that's a horror film, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's because people who love the genre need something to claim <laughs> they, they want to claim it because of that but i can understand both perspectives for me a horror film intentionally scares me and makes me as a viewer feel the fear of what is happening on screen and I don't feel that fear, much like I told you, especially with Buffalo Bill. I feel it as the way that you do. There's psychological horror, which messes with what I believe messes with my mind. And then there's a psychological thriller, which I feel like is watching a character messed with their mind. That's kind of how I separate. So I actually lean towards your line of thinking on this, because, you know, for me, it's not giving me the same feeling that a horror film is. I'm watching characters go through this psychological horror, torment between the two of them, but I'm not in on it. You know what I mean? Like I'm not part of that as an active participant. And so that's kind of how I would separate them. Now, I don't know that I would like go to bat for thriller or versus horror i would definitely not say it's like a definitive thing and i totally understand the argument and it's a fun one to have and if people want to claim it as the only best picture horror winner so be it it's certainly the closest thing that we've ever had to that but i i do think that there is a distinction and it sounds like you and i are on the same page there yeah, I feel like the conversation turning to it being the first horror best pictures because horror films usually don't get represented when it comes to award shows. So they got to get a bone once in a while. So, hey, if people want to claim it as a horror, the first horror film with best picture, have at it. Hey, I, I salute you. <laughs> there we go. Well, last but not least is our connecting point. And let's see who's comes first. I'm actually going to let you go first because mine kind of is like a theme throughout the movie. Yours is a scene. So 
Mine is the entire sequence of Clarice at the end finding Buffalo Bill and tracking him down, eventually killing him. It it starts off very well because we get that scene where we see the FBI closing in on what they think is the whereabouts of Buffalo Bill. And it's it's great editing because we switch between that, we switch between Clarice going to find this house of a Mrs. Tipton. And we're kind of wondering, okay, who's going to who's going to get to the right location first? Is it going to be Clarice or is it going to be the FBI? And then we see it's Clarice who ends up coming across him, but she doesn't know that this is Buffalo Bill. And I had never really come to find out how she was able to tell it was Buffalo Bill, but on this rewatch, I pay close attention to this scene. Clarice goes into the house. She's looking around. She's looking around all the items in this house while she's talking to who she thinks is just a regular guy named John. And so she sees the sewing materials. So that's one thing that interests her. And then the moth head lands on one of the um, wools of sewing. And then that's when she realizes she has the right guy. And so then, but then the kicker of the scene is when we get to where Buffalo Bill runs away. And now Claire Reese is on, is on the run trying to track him down. And it's, now, if people want to claim this is horror, then this is where as close as your horror you're going to get. Because we don't know where Buffalo Bill is. We're just we're just following the POV of Claire Reese. And there are certain shots in this film where we see her, where we see the camera almost in like her eyes, just wandering through this house, a maze of a house. She ends up discovering another disgusting looking body. And we're kind of we're kind of wondering what's going to happen to Claire Reese. Will she be able to find this guy? Will Buffalo Bill escape and be able to live to see another day? And then all the power goes out. And earlier in the film, we saw that Buffalo Bill had night vision goggles that he uses. And so then he has the advantage. He has the upper hand. So it's really a game of wits. Like, who's going to be able to outwit one another? And for me, this is a little nitpick of mine, but I did see that there was a chance that Buffalo Bill could have got the upper hand on Claire Reese because he clearly sees her in the night vision goggles, but... I kind of take it away that he wants to, he plays with his victims. Like, you know, a serial killer would, he just, he'll just play with his victims because he sees it as a game. And so Claire Reese, she's stumbling around in the dark. She's not able to see anything. And she's having to really rely on her sense of hearing and figuring out where could this guy be? Do I hear a step here? Do I hear, do I hear a movement here or there? And it's really unsettling because she, you're in the dark, and who's not afraid of the dark? I mean, as a kid, we were all afraid of the dark. You know, we were afraid of the boogeyman. And in the scene, Buffalo Bill is the boogeyman. And once Clarice is able to hear the gun click that Buffalo Bill is handling, then she's able to turn around and gain the upper hand and take him down. And it completes the heroic journey of Clarice, and it shows that, hey, she... She deserves being a part of the FBI. If if this was a, a train, this is almost like her train to become a part of the FBI. You know, she is able to take down a notorious serial killer. And while, like, she may not get the credit, Dr. Jack Crawford says, hey, you know, I know that you were, the, I know that you were the person that found him. And I'm always going to remember this. And so you should keep this, and you should make sure that this is special to you. And it's a phenomenally well done scene. I, I just really love the cinematography. I love that there's a, a absence of music because usually in another film you would hear uh, the score bouncing around in and playing and going up from high, going to low. But it's the absence of the score. It's the acting. Jody is doing a lot of work with just her face and her physical mannerisms. And you kind of have, and then there's the creepy breathing sound from Buffalo Bill when he has the night vision goggles that is. Ugh, it's skin crawling but it's it's probably the best sequence of the film for me and it really solidified silence of the lambs as a classic in my eyes that's awesome yeah it, it actually does call back to her training scenes there mm -hmm. are a couple of scenes of her training and failing and this is like her putting that to work and being successful instead of failing and so you're right it absolutely is her coming full circle and like becoming what she's worked to be to do. Um, mine is like I said, kind of like a theme throughout, and it's really just Crawford and Clarice's relationship. But I wanted to kind of boil it down into a few specific brief moments at the end of the film that just make it stick out to me. The first one is when the FBI is about to 
storm what they believe is uh, James Gum's house, and Clarice is actually going to be ending up at his house. And from the plane, she's not with them, but Crawford calls her, and he specifically thanks her, and you just actually talked about this, and he says, this will be remembered, and we couldn't have done this without you. And I think that that is very sweet. There's no semblance of it's not at all like ingenuine. It is completely sincere what he is saying to her. He truly is thankful and believes in her. And later we see as she's coming out of the house, somehow they showed up, by the way. I don't know how they got there, but they showed up <laughs> right as it's all over. And she's coming out of the house and he has her his arm around her. And a reporter comes up and starts to ask a question and he shoes her away and pushes the camera off and says, and just real casually makes them leave. And I found that to be a, a really subtle, powerful moment of a protective nature that he is taking over her. And then we get to the graduation and we see him standing up against the wall in the back of the room. And he just is slowly clapping as she's coming across the stage, getting her certificate. And he smiles at her again, just a real scene that shows us how much pride he has. And then he shakes her hand as an equal at the end of the film. And there's this close up shot of the handshake. And it just is a really supportive relationship throughout this like he gave her an opportunity. He believed in her throughout the film. He trusts her. He lets her have input and he gave her a chance and she was amazing, right? He didn't do it for her. He just gave her a chance. And it, and it, it speaks to that theme of like women being able to do anything men can do, but got to give people the chance, right? We can't assume they aren't. And, and it's just very different than the way other stories would play out where a woman might succeed, but it might be because of a man. And this one is very different than that. She succeeds with the support of her male superior, who is then extremely proud of her and fully acknowledges everything that she accomplished. And so it's a beautiful thing. And really in the commentary, they talked about how, they felt like this was the top gun of FBI movies, both because of the way that it accurately portrayed the FBI on cases and how the profiling has to happen and how reading and looking at pictures and, you know, the way that they move in and out of hallways when they're pursuing a, a, vi a villain of some sort, like those things, but also just how it was a promotional tool in the way that Top Gun was kind of a promotional tool for people joining the Navy. This made people want to go join the FBI and chase serial killers. And I love that. And it reminded me so much here of the relationship between Viper played by Tom Skerritt as a mentor and Maverick, because it's so similar. Like you have these characters who one is, you know, full of potential and the mentor knows that. And it just, at the end when he is, you know, got his arm around her and all of these moments wrapped together, telling her he's proud of her, telling her she'll be remembered and that, you know, he is so supportive. It just really reminds me of that moment where at the end, you know, uh, Viper tells Maverick, he's like, you know, get you, you know, you get to the ship and you need somebody to fly with you. You know, give me a call. I'll, I'll fly with you. And it just, it reminded me of that, you know? And so I, I loved it. I thought it was really meaningful and really special. And frankly, I realized watching this just how much like Scott Glenn, when he shows up in a movie, it immediately gets better for me. So hooray for this relationship. Well, that's all folks for this episode of feeling film. We appreciate you giving us a slice of time out of your day or night. And if you want to keep the conversation going or give us your thoughts, hit us up in the awesome feeling film discussion, Facebook group, Aaron. Thanks for another great conversation and we will talk soon. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. 
A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.